0: Who am I? Why am I here?
1: Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country.
0: I shall not see. And I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California
1: and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Well, welcome back to Election Shock Therapy. You're live from, well, not live, but here recorded from Bethel University. I'm Chris Moore. I'm an associate
0: professor of political science. And to my left is Andy Bramson. I'm assistant professor of political science.
2: And Mitchell Crum. I'm also an assistant professor of political science.
1: And uh, we're missing our producer, Sam Mulberry, today, um, uh, but he's got lots of hats to wear. So uh, he'll be back a little bit later on in our next episode. Um, We're back uh, after our our pilot episode uh, where uh, Mitch talked a lot about how we got here in this electoral cycle and where we're at now uh we've got some we're going to start to fold in some more uh recent news this week and um look forward to a weekly podcast from this point forward. Uh we have a couple of things on the agenda today. We'd like to talk about likability and uh what that means for our candidates, what that means for our election. And then we're going to turn a little bit to my uh area of interest and my area of, of fascination which is foreign policy. Uh, uh candidate Trump is in Mexico. Um, and uh, is talk, is going to give a speech about immigration, and we're going to talk about a little bit about both of those things. So um, to kick this off, though, guys, um, how are your classes starting?
0: Pretty good so far.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think everything's uh, gone pretty well. Uh, as, as the new guy, I'm still kind of uh, shaking sh- uh, shaking everything down and kind of getting settled, but uh, I think uh, both classes have started out well. So what is your – do you have a shtick
1: uh, for syllabus day? Do you have something you, you always roll out on the first day of class?
0: I'm – Not really. I like to just get to know people. I try to get them fired up about the class content. I like to find out a little bit about them. So this year I've been asking about um, their church background because I'm particularly interested in that studying here at Bethel. Um, And I find that people, you know, the kind of background they have, whether they were Lutheran, Catholic, Baptist, and so forth, kind of makes a difference on how they approach the way they discuss certain things, especially um, when it ties into, obviously, their faith, which comes into a lot of our classes.
2: Sure, 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 sure. So, this time around uh one of the ways that I uh, started out to just to pique everybody 's interest is I basically started out with a with a video about surveillance in Baltimore, which basically uh, there's been a little bit of a more muted controversy here uh on the fact that there's basically an airplane that circles baltimore and just takes a picture of the whole city constantly um and so i basically started out by asking not owned by google this is not owned by google no this is this is they're in uh they're basically a subcontractor with the police department and uh basically what does that mean and how did they feel about that and so that basically got them interested in politics and showed them that it's relevant to their lives
0: (laughs) nice
1: well, you all b- both are far more profound the first day of class than I am. Uh, I've, I one of the things that I dread is sort of looking at students that first day and seeing sort of those apprehensive stares of "Is this class going to be terrible. Is this class guy going to be weird? And the answer to the, is hopefully no. And then yes. Um, <laughs> so but what I try to do is is to convince them that I'm I'm a decent guy and they can laugh at me. That's a likability thing, I think. And so okay, I'm, this is a rough transition. But I'm trying to move over to thinking about how likable are our political candidates.
0: You are more likable than either of the major party candidates. Thank
1: goodness, because they are not likable, they at least are really according not. to our polling data.
0: Yeah, um, and, what's, and what's been interesting, I think, since the last time we um, met to talk about these things two weeks ago, is that Trump's numbers haven't really moved. He's still just as unlikable as ever. Um, he's about 23 points underwater, at the most recent numbers I've seen. But, okay. but Hillary has declined. So now— there, it's not Decline that become, she has become more right. Unlikable. She's become more unlikable. She had her worst uh, numbers yet uh, that came out a couple days ago. Um, that have her about you know about fifteen points down on that. So in the most recent averages, I'm seeing he's about you know twenty three three points more negatively viewed than. He is positively, and she's about 13 points under. So right. they're getting closer together, but again, it's not because people are starting to like Trump. It's because they are, um, Liking developing Hillary a deep, less. yeah, deeper and deeper in, antipathy for Hillary, I think. So,
1: okay, gentlemen, why is that? Because what we've seen is that around the time of the Democratic National Convention, Hillary was about, was liked by about as many people as she's unliked. So she's fallen off by a dozen points or so, um, in terms of likability since the convention. Is that just. A news cycle issue or has something happened to make her more unlikable
0: well I'll start this off and then maybe Mitchell has some thoughts here too but I mean I guess part of it is there's been more of the sort of more of the same kind of bad news for her so there's a yet another revelation about even more emails that she did not turn over that um, you know, no one really knows what's in them. I mean, they may be just, you know, they may be pretty minor in terms of what's in there, but just this, it contributes to this narrative that she is not a trustworthy person, that she's kind of corrupt, um, which is of course what Trump and the Republicans have been saying now for months, right? So, um, so it, you know, it's kind of confirmation. Um, of that. There's also been this sort of unhelpful uh, news cycle for her in terms of the Clinton Foundation, right? I mean, what does that mean for her as president? Um, that too looks corrupt. Again, I mean, you know, you can make an argument the Clinton Foundation's done a lot of really good things, but you um, also, you know, people look at it and say they're taking this money. They're giving it, you know, she and her husband are giving their money to the Clinton Foundation. What is it up to? Um, There's a lot of suspicion around that. And so all these things just sort of feed this narrative of the Clintons. They're kind of above the rules or they see themselves as above the rules um, and they're getting away with stuff. Right. And so I think that's that's making her be viewed more negatively.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it, I think it's mostly been uh, a function of these ongoing things. Although it's also a function of the fact that uh, Trump is finally starting to do major ad buys. And of course, one of the things mm-hmm. that we know about uh, candidates when they do ad buys is that they mostly buy negative ads. And so the ads that that are running are going to be attacks on Hillary Clinton. And of course, as we see those, we know that those ads are effective. They do uh, drive people's perceptions and they do drive down uh, people's uh, uh, the other candidates' likability. They usually don't contribute to getting out the vote your own voters. Or anything like that, but they do drive down um, the votes and the opinions of your opponent uh, of the people who support your opponent. So I think now that Trump is finally sort of getting into the campaign in earnest, we're seeing some of the effects of that as well.
0: And I, I would totally agree with that. And just add, I think what what people have said, sort of the you know the people who talk about these things on news cycles and so forth, or news organizations and so forth, um, what they've said all along is if if Trump can make this election about Hillary Clinton, he has a chance, right? If this election is about mm-hmm. Trump, he loses. And I, I think that's that's probably right. I think he's still sort of the underdog, but the more he can make this a uh, referendum on how much do people like Hillary Clinton, um, the more he has a chance to get back into this because people just don't like her very much either. Um, and so, you know, if he can persuade them that she's really that unlikable, then, you know, maybe he has a chance for that comeback that you referred to last time, Chris.
1: So this... this um bumps into a question that I wanted to ask the two of you, and this is more speculative, because we're dealing with uh, um, two of the most, in fact, maybe two, the two most unlikable people in modern American electoral history to run for the presidency. Is there a ceiling to unlikability? Now, there's, there's plenty of people in American culture who are profoundly unliked by a huge swath of America. Uh, Even more so than Trump, believe it or not. But most of those people would never set foot into the political arena. Um, Most of them, many of them are incarcerated. So um, (laughs) what uh, has Trump bumped up onto a unlikability ceiling where he doesn't really need to worry about that anymore? Because anybody who likes him is going to like him no matter what. And people who don't like him... Well then, the question just becomes: Can he make his opponents so unappealing that they that they bite their teeth and vote for, him, or bite their teeth, bite their tongue and vote for him anyway? I
2: think I think that's, I, I, I think we have seen the ceiling uh, be hit for Trump. Um, basically, he has he's, he's he's said a lot of controversial things. He's not really come out with anything that's completely shocking and new, aside from uh, potentially modifying on immigration, which we'll talk about here in a second. But. Um, but no I, yeah I think I think trump has has definitely hit hit the ceiling in terms of unlikability. His supporters are there, and most other people really have decided they that they that they don't like him already and So now, just as you said, the question is whether he can drive Hillary's numbers down uh, at those levels as well
0: right i think i I agree with that. I guess the one thing I would add to that is I mean with his sort of flip flop on immigration or potential flip flop that we'll be talking about in a little bit. Um, you know, that could drive down enthusiasm for him among his supporters. But I I think I agree with Mitchell. I don't think there's I don't think he's likely to sort of become more unlike than he already is. I mean, if, if at this point you don't you know, dislike him for the things he's already said and that he's already done, I don't see what changes your mind. I mean, and, you know, to sort of to quote Donald Trump himself. Right. You know, back in the primaries, he said, you know, I had these amazing supporters. I could go out on Fifth Avenue. I could shoot someone and they would still vote for me. Right. And it does sort of feel like we're at that stage if you haven't already gotten upset at Donald Trump for what he did, then, you know, what new thing is he going to come out with that's going to say, you know what, that's it, I'm done, I don't like him, right? And so, and then it's also important to be clear, people are going to vote for Donald Trump and people are going to vote for Hillary Clinton who don't like them, right? People who are, yes. who are going to say, you know what, yes. I don't like Donald Trump, but he's better than Hillary Clinton, or I don't like Hillary Clinton, but she's better than Donald Trump. And so, you know, there's there's going to be a, a I would say probably a pretty substantial number of people in those categories. Um, and so the key for them is making their opponents so bad that people who dislike them um, so will say, you know what, they're, still, they're not as terrible as their opponent. So.
1: I'm glad you brought that up, Andy. The, um, I think we, we hear these likability numbers, and Democrats especially like to point to Trump's profound unlikability statistic and as a sign that uh, his, 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 elect- his uh, candidacy is doomed. And I don't think that's the case. Uh, we, we don't want to confuse measuring likability with electability. Or right, with, with right. voter preference and with numbers as high as they are and unlikability for both of these candidates, what unlikability isn't capturing because unlikability ultimately, likability and unlikability is ultimately dichotomous. Uh, it, you either like somebody or you don't, but sometimes we dislike people far more than other people, and this is not capturing how much we dislike. And so, uh, Everyone might have a vague feeling of dislike or a lot of people or 73 percent of people might have a vague feeling of dislike towards towards Trump. But the people who dislike Hillary Clinton might deeply dislike her. And that, that right. this measure is just not capturing that.
0: Yeah, that's 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 absolutely right. A lot of these things just are you know, you're not getting a sense of how how passionate people are about the dislike and how deep their sort of reservations are about about the different candidates. So. You know, and the other, the other thing that plays in here, and we probably won't talk about this much today, but we should come back to this probably in the next couple weeks, is this issue of, you know, third party votes, right? Because if you get a substantial number of third party votes, that also lowers the number of votes that Hillary or Donald needs to win. Uh, to actually win this election. Right. I mean, so you could mm-hmm. Im- certainly imagine one of them winning a pretty substantial majority in the Electoral College with only, you know, 45 percent of the the popular vote or maybe even less. Right. If Johnson and Stein really catch catch fire. So, you know, that's that's the other sort of factor. We just don't know how that's going to play out.
1: True. And one of the demigods of polling, uh, Nate Silver, uh, said. Oh. Oh, nice, nice. I was gonna, I was gonna add the sound effect in later, but I'm glad oh, okay. that's good. Uh, no, um, Nate uh, said recently that um, in his, uh, by his observations, um, third party candidates like uh, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein are generally taking from Canada, uh, both uh, Trump and Clinton relatively equally right now, which is a little surprising. Um, but even more so, t- they seem to be taking more votes from Clinton than they are from Trump in swing right. states.
0: Right. I think that's right, and that's actually kind of surprising, I think, to a lot of people. People thought that, well, really, I mean, these are going to be all disaffected Trump voters, right? Right. Or, or disaffected Republicans, I should say, who should normally vote for Trump, but just can't because he's unacceptable. And that doesn't seem to be the case. When you run the the numbers with a sort of a four-way race as opposed to just between Clinton and Trump, um, it actually usually gets closer for Trump. It's usually a better um, – he, he does better. He's closer to Clinton in the polling than he is when it's just the head-to-head. So it actually seems to be hurting her more. Right. Um, with the third party candidates, which is a, a little bit surprising. Could
1: we envision a, uh, ca- uh, a campaigning tactic on the part of the Trump campaign maybe in a month or so if that if that trend continues to uh, to amplify where Trump would essentially uh, be appealing to moderate voters to go to Johnson or Stein rather than himself? As a means, of, you know, sort of, you know, championing democracy, championing choice, uh, championing the outsiders, knowing that they're going to hurt uh, his chief opponent, uh, Clinton, far more than they would hurt him. Is that something you could actually imagine him doing?
2: Uh, I could see Trump potentially going out and continuing continuing to say that you just absolutely shouldn't vote for Hillary. I could see that as a strategy, just saying vote for vote for anybody else, just, just right. don't vote for her. So maybe so maybe that would be there. Although, with that said, given Trump's uh, campaigning style and uh, his ego. I can't see him uh, too often telling it might, people.
1: It might be past his persona. Yeah, I, I, I'm yeah. not
2: sure. I'm not sure that he could. Even if he recognized the strategy uh, for what it was, I'm not sure that he could. He could put aside his ego to tell people uh, to, to to suggest that they not support him.
0: The one way he could, and I, I completely agree with Mitchell there. I think that just doesn't seem to be in keeping with Trump's personality. I think um, he's he's too self focused for that. But the one way he could do this, and he could do it because it's trump and he likes to just sort of buck the norms and he could also do it for strategic reasons if he in fact sort of recognized those would be he could insist on them being part of the debates right he could say i will not debate he's already said i don't want to debate these i don't like the dates you came up with for the debates they conflict with nfl games which it turns out it's really really hard to come up with debate dates that don't conflict with something major in american society because we have a lot of events but nonetheless (laughs) so so he's um you know he he could say look the only way i'm going to Participate in debates with Hillary Clinton is if we give a fuller spectrum. There's a couple upsides for him. One is if he sees that strategic benefit that you know, like Johnson and Stein are actually probably siphoning more votes from Hillary, Mm -hmm. then you want to give them a bigger megaphone, right? Because that could help you. That's one plus for him. The other plus for Trump that we talked about last time is that you know Trump is not great about substantive policies and really having to develop them. So a debate where there are four people on stage who all get to talk is kind of better for him in a lot of ways than a debate with two people on stage. So you know he might he might push that and say this is the only only way to debate and then the clinton campaign has to decide do we want to have that debate and put him on there and hope that he says really embarrassing things that help us or is that too risky um and so i mean you know i, I think in the end the debates probably happen, but you know there's certainly some scenarios i could envision where you know he torpedoes them and clinton decides it's not worth it
1: so that's an this raises an interesting question about third-party candidacy tactics um Stein is nowhere close to the typical standards that we apply to getting uh, third-party candidates into debates. I think right. We need to have we need to have fifteen percent in
0: the polls. Fifteen and Johnson's not even that close. Honestly, he's more like nine. Right nine.
1: Now. Between, I've seen between nine and eleven. So right, right. if um, he would need to make up some sp- some substantial ground to make the debates, let's just speculate. If he does, yeah. um, how would you advise the Johnson campaign? Uh, it seems to be there's there's two tactics. One is to maximize your vote count, which means going after Trump and Clinton. Right. The other is to appeal to essentially what is the libertarian base. Right. The libertarian base, at least traditionally, has lived in the Republican Party. Right. So, if you're advising Johnson, who should he attack, and how should he how should he pitch himself in a, in a three way debate?
0: Well, I can start this off, and then maybe Mitchell, you have some thoughts. Uh, I guess. If, if Johnson's actually trying to win, right, which in theory is what he's trying to do with, you know, trying to choose uh, William Weld is his running mate and have right. a really high, highly qualified ticket so if he's actually trying to win he has to win way more than the libertarian base right so that's a great start it can get him a decent number of votes he, you know sort of picks up the Ron Paul Rand Paul types in the Republican right. Party but then he also I think needs to appeal to the disaffected Bernie Sanders voters and say look I'm a better option for you um, than Hillary Clinton I'm more of a true believer on these things and I'm the issues you care about. And... Right. I'm anti-establishment and I'm you know I'm not one of these sort of corrupt Wall Street types um so you know, he. I think he needs to bring in those two very different groups, um, and then he has to sort of appeal to the, what we might call the reasonable moderates, right? The people who are just sort of in the middle, who are deeply uncomfortable with Clinton, who are deeply uncomfortable with Trump, and who want some somebody else. And those are three very different groups. So I, you know, I think that's a tricky line to walk, and but he has to try to walk it. I think to try mm-hmm. to win this election.
2: Yeah, I mean Johnson's. I think. I think. I think in some ways Johnson is already doing that. So his. Policy positions have already been uh, ridiculed in uh, libertarian circles for simply just being, uh, you know, they've been calling Johnson a sellout, basically. Um, so essentially because he's... Wait, wait, is he a lino, a libertarian in <laughs> <name only? laughs> uh, Maybe so. I, I haven't heard that term. That's a good one. Maybe that... Well, I, I guess we'll know we, we've made it if that term gets picked up now. <laughs> um, yeah, but Johnson... Johnson has been has been pretty uh, widely criticized in libertarian circles for for basically being soft on a lot of economic issues and uh, coming out and basically the other the other side that that has upset a lot of especially uh, sort of Ron Paul fans is he's certainly he's he's come out as being uh, extremely strident on social issues in terms sure, of being sure. liberal on those sides whereas Ron Paul uh, actually somehow maintained being conservative on, on on social issues and so in that way uh, I think he's he did, I, I, I would agree with Andy. He did, I, well, or I think you said this is he does. He doesn't really have to worry that much about the libertarian base once he gets out there, um, because if he were to take off, I think the libertarians uh, who are out there, the Ron would Paul, get Rand in Paul line they him. would get in line. I mean, they would they they would be very excited if they thought their candidate actually, you know, a candidate bearing the title of libertarian actually had a chance. Um, so, with that said, you know, I think his his main lines of attack are are going to be probably the Trump, probably the Trump supporters. I mean, that does seem to be where where he's been what he's been talking about uh, is just saying you know the you know he's basically joining in with the with the attacks there you know sort of the low hanging fruit um on you know Trump's uh unrespons you know Trump's irresponsible he's he's not qualified et cetera. and so that seems to be where where he's uh where where his first line of attack is
1: well this will be a nice test of a traditional political science uh theory which is that as we get closer and closer to elections in a a winner take all type of election like we have in the presidency that we should see uh, third-party candidates decline support as people decide that they want to vote for the candidate who will beat their least, their, their worst option. Those people realize, oh, I, 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 the Trump option or the Clinton option is the worst possible outcome. I'll vote for the person who has the best chance of beating them. That's how political scientists think that that people tend to vote. If we see uh, Johnson and Stein continue to accrue votes and gain support up through the election, that would be a strike against that to a certain extent.
0: Yeah. And this in I can very easily imagine this being the election where that theory doesn't work just because, again, it's sort of unprecedented to have two candidates who are so disliked. Right. And so it makes it much easier for people to say, you know what, I just I don't really care if it's Clinton or Trump. They're terrible options. Um, And so, I mean, to come back to sort of Lindsey Graham's analogy in the primaries about the sort of Cruz versus Trump option, right? I mean, Graham says it's just the, the option of, you know, I can either yeah. be shot or I can be poisoned. What difference does it make, right? <laughs> uh, I don't really care which one I get. Or either way, I'm dead. And so if you sort of think about those two candidates that way, if you dislike them both that strongly, then it makes it much easier to say, you know what, I'm just going to vote for Johnson. or I'm just going to vote for Stein or whoever else, right? There are other options out there. Um, and so that could, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if it did, lead to a much bigger third-party option but, or, or third-party vote. Um, so I, I, I'm kind of tentatively expecting the third party votes to actually hold up this time around but um, I realize that is against as you put it the political science orthodoxy yeah
1: well we'll see um, and we'll come back to some of this some of the polling data and take a look at what the horse race looks like um, uh, in future episodes too I'd like to transition now if yes, we can to uh, to a little bit of foreign policy or a little bit of, of foreign affairs um, candidate Trump was in Mexico uh, meeting face to face with the uh, with the Mexican president how'd that go
0: Making Mexico Great Again. (laughs) Um, Well, Actually, I'd kind of like to hear your view first because you are the international relations person in the room. Um, But I I thought it was, yeah, a very interesting play. From my perspective, kind of... Uh, a bit of a Hail Mary pass on Trump's part to try to reboot what he's doing on immigration, whatever that reboot looks like. But I'm curious what your reactions were to the, the Mexico visit, Chris.
1: I'd like to just point out before I enter this that the Notre Dame PhD was the one who talked about the Hail Mary option.
0: We love Hail Mary passes. That's at true. That's <laughs> <laughs>
1: true. Um, so uh, um, this, is, uh, this, was a, this was an odd choice by Trump, and I think it signals something by his camp, um, Obviously, uh, Mexican immigration has been the the whipping boy of the Trump candidacy from the time he announced his election. Uh, his, his most substantive and oft-repeated policy option was to build a wall uh, across the uh, U.S.-Mexican border. Um, and uh, his polling numbers amongst Hispanics are significantly worse than other Republican candidates in recent memory. Mostly because of this, and he's been an extremely hard line on uh, on immigration, and why is he going to Mexico now? I think there's there's one of two explanations here, or maybe both are true. I want to see what you both think of this. I think it's possible that he's realizing that he can't win the presidency uh, with this hard of a line. And he's preparing to essentially walk back his hardline stance in immigration to offer a softer version. We've seen some that floated the news a little bit, and he could be preparing to just open up his immigration policy. Mm -hmm. And going to Mexico uh, is maybe um, some backdrop for that, but to be honest, he could have done this without traveling to Mexico, which raises, an, uh, why, why does he need to go there for a photo op? Right, Where, well, by right. the way, the Mexican president uh, essentially berated him about uh, Mexican immigration statistics um, during a joint press conference speech, uh, basically said pointed out that uh, illegal immigration has dropped in years, basically since the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. Mexican immigration has fallen um, right. uh, and is uh, not nearly the issue it was uh, before, so why is Mr. Trump making a, a big deal out of this so this raises why would he go here and and sort of tolerate this i think that to maybe my surprise the trump camp perceives hillary clinton to be vulnerable on foreign policy Hmm. and that's really odd if you think about these candidates with if you scrub off the names at the top of their resumes if you had a, a an american business leader running against a former senator former first lady uh former secretary of state uh By the way, Hillary Clinton was at her most popular while she was secretary of state with the American people. If all those things were true, this would seem like the thing you would run away from. You wouldn't want to challenge her on foreign policy. But it seems like he's setting himself up to maybe challenge her bona fides when it comes to her foreign policy decision making. And and moving abroad, meeting with foreign leaders is is a way to do that. Am I right or am I reading too much into this visit?
2: Uh, I think I think there is something to that. I think especially with the recent, uh, the, I know there's been an increase in reporting on things like Libya and some of the uh, things that happened w- uh, under while, while Clinton was Secretary of State that have received uh, increased scrutiny. And so maybe Trump actually thinks that you know basically because of those controversies that that this is something that can be pushed into into an issue that says that actually uh, you know her time as Secretary of State should be viewed as a liability. It shouldn't be viewed as as, as a strength.
0: Yeah, I think that that seems right to me. And I would add, too, I mean, if, if you can take her down as secretary of state, right, if you can if you can knock her down a notch and say this is not a great qualification, this doesn't actually make her well prepared to be president, then, frankly, there's not a ton left. I mean, she was a very solid senator from New York for, mm-hmm. you know, for eight years. But that, you know, there's not there's nothing really sort of major achievement um, no major achievement she can point to to say, hey, here's what I did, here's how I led. And then being first lady, I mean, it does look like she's sort of just sponging off her husband's presidency. Hmm. Um, and it's not in, in itself a substantive accomplishment. Um, you I mean you were married to the right person, right? But that doesn't mean you, sure. a, you know, you have been, done something on your own. So, I actually kind of think this makes sense. I don't know if Trump can pull it off, but it kind of makes sense as a strategy for him. Um, in the sense that, you know, he's already and he and the Republicans have already been knocking down Hillary's sort of foreign policy bona fides, in particular with the sort of Benghazi um, yeah. investigation yeah. and so forth. You've already established some doubt in people's minds about that. It also brings again and again back to people's consciousness, the whole email thing. Right. Which is sure. directly connected to her secretary to her of state, secretary um, state. Yep. service. So, you know, again, if you can if you can bring her down on this issue, even if you don't completely succeed. Right. You can raise doubts in people's minds. Then it makes her, uh, you know, sort of takes away her strongest argument for why I should be president is you can trust me in the room with Vladimir Putin, you can't trust Trump. And if we stop trusting her, then that sort of removes it one of the big reasons. That yeah. yeah. It negates a big advantage for her.
1: So this is sort of a, um, without making it too abstract, this is Trump deciding to attack Clinton's strengths rather than attack Clinton's weaknesses or, may, or, or tie Clinton's strengths to her weaknesses.
0: Yeah, I would go with the tie argument. I mean, because again, it ties it back to the you know you bring in the Clinton Foundation, you bring in the email controversy, you bring in the Benghazi thing, right? So it it ties the strongest things about Hillary to the weakest things about her. Um, and he's again continually reminding us of you don't actually like Hillary Clinton either, um, which you know is what he has to do. I mean, he has to bring Hillary down, and I think he needs to bring her negatives, um, you know, make her even more disliked ideally for for him to actually win. Uh, because, I like I said, like Mitchell said earlier, I mean, I think he's probably hit about his ceiling in terms of, you know, how much people dislike him. But, you know, I don't think his positive numbers are going to rise substantially either. They might go up a little bit, but they're you know, he's not going to get back to sort of even <laughs> far. Right. Um, so, you know, what he needs is for people to dislike Hillary more and more and more and realize, mm-hmm. like, you know, that I, hey, I dislike Hillary so much. I'm going to hold my nose and vote Trump. Sure.
1: And as much as Americans complain about negative campaigning and negative campaign commercials, it, it works it works, and this might be um, the apex thus far of that behavior because right. if both these candidates are profoundly unlikable it's going to be a, a a hard stream a hard swim upstream to get that people to like them, but we can certainly accentuate why they should dislike the other person more yep. Um, let's talk about the other side of this equation, which is uh, Trump's views on immigration uh, and, and maybe a little bit of Clinton's views, although although that's a, a little bit more mainline. Um, is he shifting his position? Is he preparing to walk back sort of what was one of the more hardline stances against immigration in, in recent memory?
0: So, I mean, the last couple days feel like a divided story in that regard. On the one hand, he travels to Mexico. He makes these relatively... Yeah. For him, certainly moderate statements on immigration and, you know, it says some nice things about them. And then he comes back to Arizona and gives a pretty classically Trump hardline speech. So, yeah, I'm really actually quite curious what you do think. I mean, that's my sort of summing up of what's happened in the last 48 hours. But I don't really know how to read this. I mean, is he trying to flip flop? Is he just trying to show, hey, I can go out and do what needs to be done with you know sort of our allies. But ultimately, I'm still the same old Donald that you loved during the primaries. Um, i don 't know what do you think any thoughts Mitchell Chris uh,
2: well, I mean according to you know sort of the classic uh, sort of uh, median voter theorem <laughs> way of way of looking at politics you know you always think that that especially when you 're in a two two person race you 're trying to get that middle voter you 're trying to get the most moderate person and you're always trying to attract them and so usually as soon as the primary is over, you see candidates running to you know uh, running to the center they sort of immediately abandon all of their uh, sort of more more extreme positions and then they uh start trying to appeal to to the people who who are uh who are, who, are, who are not so extreme. And one of the things that was curious about Trump was that he wasn't doing that um, for a long time, at least, you know, for the for the couple of months after the primaries were over. He just continued uh, to say and do what he'd always been saying and doing. And at the same time, Hillary Clinton had, was beginning to moderate her position. So she was uh, she you know, she chose a very moderate running mate and she started right. moving, moving towards the center, which is the sort of the classic strategy to to win. Uh, and I think maybe Trump at this point is 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 seeing this. I think he knows now that, uh, you know, he's not going to win unless he unless he moderates a little bit. And that seems to be what's going on. I think last night's speech, um, one of the things, you know, and, and Andy is absolutely right. I was actually I. I. I was personally surprised uh, as I watched it last night as just how classically Trump he was. I mean, just how he came out uh, with all of, you know, the terrible stories and, you know, was basically trying to get the crowd whooped up on how, Mm -hmm. um, you know, terrible immigration is and all of these things. So, you know, I was so I was actually surprised given uh, how, you know, as as uh, as Chris said, you know, given how conciliatory um, and sort of subdued he was in Mexico. Right. Um, But. What's interesting is what he didn't say. So some of the stuff that even though he got everyone whipped up and sort of got the crowd going saying, you know, immigrants are immigrants are are a problem and are really, uh, you know, and and even are bad people. You know, he's 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 constantly making that insinuation that immigrants are just bad people. Um, He actually didn't say that he was going to make sure that they were all you know, they were that they were sort of immediately going to be gone, which is sort of a promise that he's been making. that They're just going to be gone immediately. He's just going to get rid of them right off. He started these uh, deportation uh, tasks forces and, right so that's yeah. not that he's not what well, he's he's saying that's going to be there for people who are criminals right um but he's no longer sort of sort of this broad brush thing and, and so it's sort of interesting that he even even in that speech at least i'd i have to go back and double check it again but i don't think that he came out and said you know that he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't as, as hard line in his statements of policy
0: yeah and i didn't actually watch the speech i just read read parts of it and read it about it online but um today in the news but what it seemed like you said, too, from what I was reading, is that, you know, there's this idea that, like, okay, immigrants who have been here illegally will have to pay back taxes and things like that. But, again, that's a much more moderate line sure, than what he said before, before, which is, like, we're going to send all 12 million of them or however many we have back to Mexico, right? Um, and and this is a, you know, this is a more, again, more mainstream kind of idea. It's like we can work something out. There need to be some kind of consequences for having, you know, sort of bypassed the normal legal process. but. You know, that we're not going to send hardworking people who have Americans, you know, citizens as their children back to Mexico. Right. Um, And so that that would be a much more, you know, again, more mainstream kind of position that he would be taking. So it it does feel like he's shifting. But as Mitchell pointed out, the interesting thing is like, but still with this sort of weird, extreme rhetoric. Right. Um, So it's a. Yeah, it's very interesting. And maybe what he's trying to do, I mean, if I'm just speculating about trying to get inside the mind of Donald Trump here for a minute, I mean, maybe he's trying to, on the one hand, keep his sort of, you know, diehard supporters enthused about his candidacy and say, I understand you. I hear you. I understand your frustration. But on the other hand, show, you know, sort of the middle voters, look, I can say these things. They may be a little bit extreme when I talk. But when I go to actually do business for America, when I go to meet with presidents, I can behave in the way you've come to expect your presidents to behave. Mm -hmm. Um, And so maybe that's what he's trying to do is sort of play this this sort of double game and say, look, there's there's I don't want to say there's two Donald Trumps, but there's the Donald Trump who gets the crowd fired up and there's the Donald Trump who goes into serious high level meetings. And maybe, you know, maybe it's a, it's a risky line to take, but if sure. you can persuade Americans um, and in particular Americans in the middle um, and sort of Republicans who are worried about his temperament, that this is the real Donald Trump, right. That the, you know, he knows how to sort of turn it off and go into meetings and get business done. Then maybe <laughs> he pulls this off. I don't know.
2: And I think the one other thing uh, about that too, and I, I think I think that's absolutely yeah I think I think that's really uh, prob- probably right uh, you know uh, about Trump sort of giving these two sides to himself. One other thing that I think Trump is doing as well is a lot of people when they say they're voting for Trump, they say they're not voting for him because of his policies. They they know that his policies, generally speaking, aren't going to work. I mean they, they <laughs> you know the, you know Trump Trump supporters, um, despite the sort of the cliche of the media, are not stupid people. I mean they you know and they and they know that they know that this a lot of what he's saying is is, is is, 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 yeah it's just it's just unrealistic um but with that said. A lot of the time, the reason a lot of people say they support Trump is because he speaks uh, for them or he speaks, he recognizes them, he sees them. And so Mm -hmm. sort of that politics of of recognition in that way, um, I think Trump definitely continued that last night. I mean, he continued to recognize his supporters, um, even though then on the policy end, you know, his supporters already aren't there necessarily for the policies. They're there for the recognition. And so maybe he's kind of decided he doesn't lose anything um, so long as he continues the recognition and moderates the policies.
0: And maybe it's worth pointing out something else, too, that just struck me as I'm sitting here listening to us talk um, and thinking about what we're saying, which is that, I mean, is this a success for Trump? I think, as Chris, you said this last time, like that, that Trump likes attention and he wants to keep the attention on him. And is any attention sort of good attention? Hmm. Right. Even though it's I mean, even if it's bad attention. Right. I mean, you're the one getting the news cycle. And again, here we are sitting and talking about the you know, election 2016 and talking about the presidential race. And our talk has been almost all about Donald Trump. Right. Right. Um, and this is not. Um, an unusual <laughs> distribution, right? I mean, like Donald Trump is doing the exciting, interesting things, right. right? And Hillary can sit over there and be critical of him going to Mexico. Ah, that doesn't solve anything uh, and fix the problems you've created. But the reality is, it captures the news cycle, right? We have footage of him in Mexico, and then that makes his immigration speech when he comes back a bigger news. And so, I mean, you know, he's getting the attention, um, and does that attention then ultimately translate into votes? I mean, that's that's the right. that's the tricky thing for him. But but he certainly is capturing the news cycle. that's his goal. Um, this is working.
2: And I just wanted to point out too, I mean, you know, Trump wasn't the only person who gave a big speech over the last couple of days. Hillary Clinton gave a huge foreign policy speech. Sure. True. And actually I would, I would, uh, uh, you know, just, just going along those lines. But as Andy rightly points out, we're not hearing about it. We're not talking about it. Right. You know, the, the discussion in the media, um, and, and obviously amongst ourselves too here is, is, is about Trump. Um, yeah. Which is unusual in
1: that, <clears throat> excuse me, he's down in the polls too. Um, Right. And she is leading the polls and by most prognostications is still the favorite to become to to win the election. And we're not paying much attention to her. I've listened to a couple uh, Democratic strategists, folks who worked the Obama campaign, and, and they're they're sort of disagreeing about whether she needs to try harder. To to maybe be in the news more to make more of a splash or whether she should just enter the witness protection program um, (laughs) and just wait quietly while hopefully uh, Trump says more unpalatable crazy things and then loses the election for himself. Is is there an
2: advantage either way here? Uh, I I think I think right now Hillary Clinton is does seem generally speaking uh, fairly happy to sort of assume this uh, to, to sort of let Trump go out there and and just continue to do self harm, um, but one thing one thing that I, I did find interesting about the the Hillary Clinton speech, uh, and this is and this is something maybe Chris can <laughs> speak for uh, as well is that and maybe Andy will want to comment on this as well is is that they were one of the things that she was talking about was she was pointing out uh, you know she was speaking to uh, a, a group of American Legion she, uh, an American Legion and. Uh, one of the things she said is she would never insult, um, you know, gold star families. And sure. so one of the things that I think is interesting about Hillary, and this is somebody, uh, this is me as somebody who's not necessarily an IR expert. This is not, not my field, but it seems like Hillary Clinton has very much become, uh, sort of the hawk. She's sort of become yes. the neoconservative. <clears throat> um, and not, not that she's, you know, she's, you know, obviously she's not George Bush or anything like that, but, um, uh, but you know, but she's very much assumed a lot of that sort of, sort of stance, um. And I think her speech yesterday in some ways reflected um, her trying to position herself um, in that way on those issues.
1: Yeah. um, This might be a bit of an extreme example. She's not George W. Bush. She's not a neoconservative, but she might be George Herbert Walker Bush, um, his father. And Mm -hmm. in some ways, I think um, she uh, Clinton is far more hawkish than. Uh, Sanders, for sure, but also some of the other likely Democrats in the field, she may even be more hawkish than Obama in that way. And I think, and when we say hawkish, by the way, um, what, what we mean by this is she's more willing to use military force, more willing to support the expansion of the military compared to a dove who would be in favor of reducing the impact of the military, both in size and scope. Um, and um, she has regularly positioned herself when she was at, as secretary of state right. to be willing to use military force in conjunction with diplomatic force and appears to be willing to continue that kind of position through uh through a presidency too so mm-hmm. um in many ways both one thing that clinton and trump both agree on is that America's military should be large and strong and well funded? Right. Uh, Clinton would choose probably to use that military in in a wider array of options than Trump would. Trump seems seems to be advocating for a military which is uh, strong, well funded, and kept at home, right. um, and maybe maybe may a little bit more of an isolationist uh, tinge to his uh, to his foreign policy rhetoric.
0: Yeah, his—I mean, his—his his rhetoric at least seems to be kind of a throwback to an earlier Republican era. I mean, sort of you know between the World Wars and a little bit after World War II, even um, where you get that more that more isolationist approach. Republicans have in recent years been much more sort of inclined to use force actively. Um, so Trump seems to be hearkening back to that earlier era. And I would I would agree with Chris, and I would actually say it's stronger. I mean, I think she is definitely. Um, a more hawkish candidate than President Obama. I mean I think I think she's gonna be stronger in that regard. I also wonder here too how much of the how much of the gender issue plays in, which is mm. that you know she Hillary Clinton is trying to become the first uh, woman to be president of the United States right. and there is this perception you know fair or unfair right of women as being the people who are at home. they're kinder, they're softer, they're gentler right And so does she feel this need to emphasize like look, I may be a woman, but I am not afraid to use force. I'm not afraid to make the tough calls. I'm not afraid to send the military in um, to fight for American interests. Right. So that that's also possibly playing in here in the way she well, that's approaches
1: us. We, We've seen that narrative before. We've seen other female heads of state have to exercise. Uh, greater aggressiveness, either in personal rhetoric or even in policies, uh, to uh, uh, supposedly to compensate for their for their gender. Margaret Thatcher immediately comes to mind as the as the Iron right, Lady. Right, that's what I was uh, thinking of. Too. But also um, uh, um, Ellen uh, Johnson Sirleaf of, of right. Liberia, and um, sort of in terms of sort of reforming corruption. Gosh, even Catherine the Great, we could talk about all <laughs> kinds of folks here. Um, but yeah, that's a fascinating idea here, um, and uh, that'd be to see if that plays a role in kind of right. in, in her candidacy and her and potentially her presidency. Um, I want I want to uh, end with um, uh, two questions. One: uh, If Trump walks back his uh, immigration policy, softens his immigration policy, does he run the risk of being accused of being a flip flopper? We've had we've been dealing with flip flops and other sandals uh, since the 2004 election with John Kerry, who (laughs) apparently was uh, uh, for the against for for the Iraq war before he was against it.
0: Right. Um,
1: right. But um, flip flopping has become just an almost unforgivable sin. in American politics. Uh, Is there could Trump be a flip flopper? And is this a problem for him?
0: Well, I'll I'll lead off here, but I think it's the unforgivable sin that everyone commits, right? So, <laughs> um, true. you know, pretty much all politicians flip-flopped have flip-flopped on something at some point. Um, and so the question is, can you sell it as sincere as necessary? Um, So the one line I saw from Trump where he was trying To sell what he's doing On immigration here that I thought could really Actually work for him is that look This is about America first right that I'm Whatever I'm doing I'm going to do for the sake of the American citizen so it's sort of that Argument I mean if you want to go back to Abraham Lincoln Right Lincoln says my top goal was is to Save the union if I can do that by freeing some Slaves and not others I'll do that if I can do it by Freeing them all uh, I'll do that if I can do it By freeing none I'll do that right my point my whole Goal is to save the union union um, And to keep that together and so if Trump's whole goal right is just I'm going to look out for the interests of the American people then he can make the argument look I mean if that means building a 55 foot wall I'll do that if it means sort of you know um, getting illegal immigrants to be legalized and to pay back taxes I'll do that I'll do whatever it takes right if he can make that case then this isn't. Flip flopping so much as just changing which means accomplish the end he's trying to achieve. Um, and so if sure. you can sell that, then this becomes, I think, an acceptable flip flop. Um, if it just becomes a, if he looks like another politician is just flip flopping on an issue, then it's a big problem.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, in, in some ways, uh, I, I think Andy's absolutely right. I think Trump may be able to, to get away with this. Um, the, People who who are having a little bit more trouble with it are sort of the ideologues who have supported him. So I think the people who are going to really struggle with this are people like Ann Coulter, uh, who just released a book on Trumpism, um, yep. which which you know basically heralded his his immigration policies as sort of why he was so great. Um, and she's already uh, come out with contradictory statements back and forth on uh, how maybe Trump is still okay or maybe Trump has just betrayed everything that
0: um,
2: she ever thought he was. And so it'll be interesting to see how she comes down. And you know, whichever one will sell the more, but most books. Right. This is probably right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, and then the same with Rush Limbaugh. And Rush Limbaugh has actually been receiving some some pushback um, from from some corners of the conservative world as well. Um, basically, because you know, Tr- uh, Limbaugh was one of Trump's early. Um, I, I, even if support isn't maybe support is too strong, but at least sympathizers mm-hmm. um, in the in amongst the conservative world. And now in one of the reasons, of course, that he also supported him was because of immigration. And he would say that the other candidates, you know, just weren't didn't have enough backbone on this. And now right. that Trump seems to be going that way, it's tough for him to sell this. Um, and, uh, and and so and so you look at these and so, and so you look at sort of the conservative world. And Sean Hannity, of course, too. Sean Hannity is also going to be facing the same 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 issue. Um, and, so, and so I think it'll be interesting to see in some ways more interesting uh, even than how Trump handles this, because I think Andy's right. Trump may be able to sell this um, in a way that that, uh, that scoots around it. But I think it's gonna be interesting to see if the conservative uh, sort of the sort of the conservative talk radio um, circles can can survive and, and what that or at least or at least uh, uh, how the, how they can how they can try to spin this.
0: Yeah, I, and I, I have not gotten a chance to go hear all the lamenting by, um, Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh on Hannity yet, but I probably should go do that, um, just to sort of hear what they're saying. But it, I think they're in an interesting spot because A, they have nowhere else to go, right? I mean, there's, there's no one else that's going to be better for them on this that has any sort of remotely plausible chance. I mean, they're not going to like Johnson or Stein better and they obviously are never, ever going to go for Hillary Clinton, right? So, so they have nowhere to go. That's the first point. And the second point I would make there is, that um, you know they they've been criticizing Republicans who have been bailing because oh Trump's too extreme Trump's this Trump's that right they've been hammering those people right you can't do that you have to vote and get Hillary Clinton out of there right and so I mean they're they're in a very difficult spot if they start walking back their support and saying we're not going to vote for Trump we're sitting this one out right because they themselves have been hammering people like that uh, for months now so sure. so in again I think you know from a tactical standpoint this doesn't seem to me like a bad play for Trump, especially since he is down in the polls. He's probably not going to lose that many of the people um, who are there and who are voting for him for that reason, because they're still going to say, you know what, we have a better chance of getting the kind of immigration policy we want with Trump than with anyone else. And he might pull off winning some other voters. Um, he right. might not. I mean, he's got a long track record here where these people are going to be reluctant to vote for him. But it's worth a try. I mean, when you're down five points and you're down by more in the swing states, um, you got to try something. And this seems as reasonable as any other option he has.
1: Okay. So what that seems to suggest, going back to Mitchell's point perhaps, is that uh, while Clinton has traditionally run the, uh, the uh, median voter strategy election... Uh, where she's moved, she's moderated her position to try to pull herself to the middle and capture uh, median voters. Uh, Maybe Trump is preparing to do that, to run a similar – guys, I'm still thinking about the Olympics. I'm still thinking about the 1,500-meter run. Uh, And uh, are Trump and Clinton going to run the same strategies and compete on the same grounds, or are they going to run two very different strategies? If Trump runs the middle like Clinton is, they're running the same kind of strategy, and it's just simply who executes it better. If Trump uh, stays to right. stays on the right and continues to to motivate his base, that's a very different strategy. And now we're not now we're not measuring their hands on their overall execution relative to each other, but on two very different
0: strategies. I think whatever Trump does, it will be different. That's the one thing that seems safe to say after his performance <laughs> in this election cycle.
2: Yeah, I think. Uh Trump, Trump Trump will be different just in terms just in terms of the, of the way he executes that strategy if he does. Um, his, his rhetoric, I think, will obviously continue to be extreme. So to the extent that he's sort of appealing to the median vote, you know, to, to, to the extent if, – if, if he tries to appeal to the median voter, it will be in a different way. It will be in a way that sort of says, um, I am who I am, but you should still uh, like me because I'm not as bad as everybody sort of makes it out to be. Uh, and maybe that's something we should talk about some other time too is – um, Trump's demonizing of the media and how that might play out into this strategy as well.
1: Well, Mitch, we're going to call that the Popeye strategy. I yam who I yam. All right? <laughs> right? Sounds good. Well, I think we need to sign off, gentlemen. Sounds good. So on behalf of my colleagues, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, from Bethel University, this is the Political Science Department, and this is, you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. Go Royals!